0: The Old Pilots' Plane Tales The Battle of A It had been early in the Vietnam War that the A Special Forces Camp was built in the valley of the same name, about 30 miles southwest of Hawaii, only a mile and a quarter from the Laos border. The valley was important to the Viet Cong because it formed a bridge between the Ho Chi Minh Trail and the populated coastal area of Tua Tien Province. The camp was established in 1963, and when the battle started in 66, it was defended by 17 Green a mobile strike unit of special forces, And around 400 South Vietnamese irregulars. The camp had received intelligence from North Vietnamese defectors that four battalions of the Viet Cong 325th Division, some 2,000 troops, were planning to attack, and on the night of the 8th of March, the first assault was launched poor weather initially prevented air support, so, although beaten back at first, the North Vietnamese Army continued to attack despite heavy casualties. On the 9th, after a fierce mortar bombardment, which reduced many defensive positions to rubble, more attacks followed, but this time US air support was able to assist. It was far from ideal, since the weather put the American aircraft below a low cloud base. At that altitude, they suffered withering ground fire from the Viet Cong. A USAF AC 47 spooky gunship was downed, and supply drops meant for the camp, which landed outside the perimeter, couldn't be retrieved. The next day, another wave of enemy troops attacked with recoilless rifle fire and mortars and an assault team that broke through the perimeter and had to be beaten off in hand-to-hand combat. Throughout the day, American forces provided air support hitting enemy positions around the camp and it was during one of these missions that Dick Andrews looked down from the cockpit of his spad more formally known as the Douglas A1 Skyraider, as the scene unfolded below him. A short distance from the battle around the camp, he was watching an act of courage that would be recognized as one of the bravest feats of the Vietnam War. He thought momentarily of his friend, fellow pilot and commander of the 602nd Air Commando Squadron, Richard Wilsey whose men were fighting for their lives below. Dick was flying top cover for those pilots that day, and it was a memory that he shared with Wilsey that came flooding back to him. It was in 1944, during the Second World War, and the day after his 20th birthday, that Andrews had been flying a P-38 Lightning over the Polesti oil fields of Romania. His squadron had been dive-bombing, and we'll see the 96th Fighter Squadron's Operation Officer, and one of the most experienced pilots in the group, had been hit by enemy ground fire. An anti-aircraft shell exploded next to his cockpit, and shrapnel hit his head, whilst other shells tore into his aircraft, throwing it about and lifting his feet off the rudder pedals. Wilsey already had 60 missions under his belt and had downed an ME109 and a Blomenvoss 238 massive six-engine flying boat, but it looked like this might be his last flight when his left engine started streaming oil. He feathered the prop, but then noticed that his good engine was leaking radiator coolant and he knew that within a few minutes it would also fail. Already he couldn't maintain altitude, and he called his flight group to tell them that he was going down. Andrews, on only his 11th mission, was on Wilson’s wing that day and called for him to pick a good spot. I'm coming down after you. Dick wondered for a moment what Andrews meant, but he was too busy setting up for a forced landing to work out what the youngster had in mind. As the rest of his squadron fought off a group of German fighters, he picked a farmer's ploughed field, and whilst his remaining engine coughed and spluttered, a fresh hit smashed his windscreen, blooding his forehead. But he managed to get the wounded lightning over the last obstacle before landing the aircraft on its belly along the furrows of turned earth. As the fighter bucked and heaved on the uneven ground, he put his head forward onto the padded gunsight, but still took a beating to his face before the aircraft skidded to a halt. He clambered out of the fighter and grabbed a small phosphorus grenade which he threw into the cockpit, setting the wreck alight. As his beloved P-38 burned, he spotted a truckload of German troops approaching from the tree line, and then he was buzzed by more Messerschmitts. He could hear the whine of rifle fire passing close by, but then came the more familiar sound of another aircraft, and he turned in amazement to see a P-38 with gear and flaps down touching down onto the soft earth. The moment that he realised his leader was in trouble, Dick Andrews had made up his mind to help. Wilsey was going down into a hornet's nest of enemy troops, but that didn't change his mind, and Andrews lined his lightning up on the same field, setting the flaps and undercarriage. Then he realised he was too close, so raised his gear and eased the aircraft round through 270 degrees and tried again. This time he was better set up, and he made a good landing across the furrows and managed to stop about a hundred feet from a cornfield. He quickly pulled his flaps up and then positioned them for takeoff, set the engines at 1800 rpm, and put the park brake on. "'As soon as he realised what was going on, "'Wilsey started running towards Andrew's aircraft, "'and as he got there he saw Dick was out on the wing, "'throwing his parachute away and dropping the folding ladder. "'Andrews held his hand down to help Wilsey up onto the wing "'and shouted, "'You fly!' "'How they both fitted into the cockpit was a miracle,' It was a good job that they were slender young men, but Dick Wilsey got in the front and sat as far forward as possible, whilst Dick Andrews slid in behind him with one leg over Wilsey's shoulder and the other down under his left arm. Within seconds, the two Dicks had the cockpit closed and Wilsey set low pitch, held the stick back and eased the throttles fully open. As they started bumping over the soft ground the nose wheel started digging in but with two of them in the cockpit Dick couldn't get the stick far back enough so he wound the trim to full up, the wheel lifted clear and they started rolling. They rushed towards the trees at the end of the field and it didn't look like they would make it but a well-timed selection of combat flap helped them to lift off and they scraped over. Wilsie said later that he was glad those trees hadn't been ten feet taller. What followed was an uncomfortable two and a half hours of flight to their Russian refuelling base at Poltava, but they kept their spirits up, joking and kidding with each other, and Andrews managed to swab the bleeding Wilsie with iodine. When they climbed out, the crew chiefs were amazed to see two of them get out of the same cockpit. After a couple of days, they returned to Foggia, their base in Italy, and were greeted like celebrities. As young Dick Andrews stepped out of his aircraft, he was greeted by General Nathan Twining, who awarded him an immediate field promotion to second lieutenant and pinned the Silver Star for gallantry. "'onto his chest. "'Now, 22 years later, "'Dick Andrews was flying over the Battle of Aschau "'and feeling déjà vu "'as he saw what was going on beneath him. "'The actors below playing out the scene of extreme bravery "'were Bernie Fisher and Jump Myers. "'The fight for survival in the Aschau Special Forces camp "'had not been going well, Despite large losses, the North Vietnamese outnumbered the Americans and their allies, who were running short of ammunition, and had also received a number of casualties. The nearby airstrip had been overrun, but the spads from the air commando squadrons continued their air attacks. Major Dafford Myers was leading a flight of Sky Raiders, strafing and dropping ordnance on the enemy troops, when his engine was hit by ground fire. With the massive motor dead and flames licking around his cowling, his heart sank. He got a call that he was on fire and burning clear back to his tail. Realising that he was going down, he was already too low to abandon his spad, so he decided to crash-land the machine. Jump, as he was known, knew that going down into the jungle was the worst option. His only chance of survival was to use the runway that served the camp, one made of pierced steel planking, but now controlled by the North Vietnamese. "'he dropped the rest of his bomb-load "'and lined up with the jungle strip for a wheels-up landing. "'On touching down, his spad skidded sideways for nearly six hundred feet "'before hitting a bank and bursting into a large ball of flame. "'Those above assumed the worse, and that Myers must have perished. "'Indeed, that was the call that was made back to command.' but then the smoke momentarily cleared and Jump was spotted running across his wing out of the inferno and getting into a ditch behind the bank. Overhead, leading a spad flight from a different unit, was Major Bernie Fisher. Bernie was a modest man, wholly lacking in the flyboy swagger that was common amongst combat pilots. He used to be a scoutmaster who loved aviation, sometimes flying over camping events and dropping sweets and candy onto the delighted scouts below. He volunteered for duty in Vietnam and flew some 200 combat missions during a period when the casualty rate amongst his fellow pilots rose as high as 40%. A fellow aviator described him as a family man who didn't drink or smoke, and the strongest swear word he ever used was shucks. Bernie had seen Jump survive, and he started to coordinate a rescue helicopter, but after ten minutes, when he asked where the chopper was, he was told it was still twenty minutes away. In the meantime, the Spads had been attacking the Viet Cong troops who were intent on capturing or killing Jump Myers, trying to hold them off. One veteran of the battle later likened it to flying inside the Yankee Stadium with all the people in the bleachers firing at him with machine guns. Bernie realised that, regardless of their efforts, Myers was going to be overrun, and despite not even knowing the man he decided to land and pick him up. His fellow aviators tried to dissuade him, but he was adamant. Control told him the strip was about 3,300 feet long, barely long enough for a spad, but in reality it was only 2,500 feet. He came in through smoke and fire at about 95 knots, and touched down, slipping and skidding on and off the strip, and then, as he came up to the end, he realised he couldn't stop. He ran off the runway with red-hot brakes, damaging a wing and the tail section, almost careering into a fuel dump, but luckily, as he swung his aircraft around, his wing passed over most of the barrels of fuel. He pointed back down the runway and taxied along it, skirting all kind of debris, until he saw Myers make a fierce sprint towards the aircraft. Bernie lost sight of him in the smoke and thought that he must have been hit, so he set the brakes and unstrapped to help him, but then Myers jumped up onto the wing. "'Nobody's ever seen an old man like me run so fast in his life,' Myers, then 46, said later. Two other Sky Raiders raked the area with bullets, reportedly killing a North Vietnamese only a few yards from the running pilot. Bernie grabbed Jump Myers' flight suit and pulled him head first into the Sky Raider, spun around and sat on him. It was hard on his head, but he didn't complain, Bernie said. We didn't talk much, but he kind of looked up and gave me a weak smile and mumbled something like, You're one crazy son of a gun. Bernie Fisher later admitted, in his quiet way, that he thought they were in serious trouble, but he gunned the 18 cylinders of his mighty right cyclone engine and set off down the strip barely managing to get the spad off the ground in time. The aircraft was taking all sorts of fire as enemy soldiers peppered the machine. Then Myers, slathered in mud, oil and soot, asked for a cigarette. Sorry, I don't smoke, came the reply. After Major Fisher returned to his base at Pleiku, the ground crew counted 19 bullet holes in the aircraft. Meanwhile, the Battle of Assau continued, but as the situation became more desperate, the decision was finally made to evacuate. Abandoned equipment was destroyed and 15 Sikorsky H-34C Bats, supported by four Iroquois gunships, flew in. Sadly, the helicopters were mobbed by South Vietnamese soldiers and civilians and became so overloaded that the special forces were forced to throw some of their allies off so that they could get airborne. Two of the transport helicopters were lost to ground fire. After the battle, only five American ground troops were declared missing, but somewhere between two and three hundred South Vietnamese troops were killed or missing. The U.S. estimated that eight hundred Viet Cong were killed. Jeff Underwood, historian of the National Museum of the United States Air Force at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, Ohio, said the battle in the Ashao Valley was ultimately a victory for the North Vietnamese but he also said that the engagement and Major Fisher's bravery helped boost morale for fellow airmen and for soldiers sent to similar dangerous and isolated outposts. Bernie Fisher was often asked why he took the risk, landing on an airstrip littered with debris, surrounded by hills and bristling with guns to save a man he barely knew. He replied that a comrade-in-arms was about to be killed and he believed that he could save him. It's important that you respond to your feelings when the time comes for it, he said. On his return to the United States on the 19th of January 1967, he was presented the Medal of Honor by President Lyndon B. Johnson in a White House ceremony. He was the first living Air Force recipient of the medal, all previous awards having been posthumous, and the first USAF member to receive the medal in the Vietnam War. Of note, Fisher had already earned a Silver Star the previous day, whilst flying support for the same battle. It turned out that Jump Myers had been promoted to Lieutenant-Colonel that morning and didn't think he would ever put his eagles up but thanks to Bernie Fisher, he got the chance. Myers called Bernie Fisher every year on the anniversary of the rescue to wish him well, and after he died in 1992, his daughter kept up the tradition for 22 more years. Bernie Fisher passed away in 2014 at the age of 87, but his Skyraider, number 32649, is on display at the National Museum of the United States Air Force in Dayton, Ohio. If you enjoyed this story, then please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. Find us at AirlinePilotGuy.com